The following episode is brought to you by the American Urological Association. This special episode comes to you from an instructional course presented at AUA 2023. For more information, including how to claim CME credit or to view faculty disclosures, please visit the AUA University at auanet.org university. Independent educational grant support is provided by AstraZeneca, Janssen Biotech Inc., administered by Janssen Scientific Affairs, LLC, and Merck & Co. Inc. Thank you for coming here. Um, my name is Dmitry Nikolovsky. We have this course. It's called What General Urologist Needs to Know About the Care for Transgender Patients. The idea came about 2016 when I realized that many of us began to see patients uh, after phalloplasty or vaginoplasty with retention, with some kind of complications. And I started seeing these patients since 2013, and it was very embarrassing for me not to know even what to ask and how to examine. So my learning curve was very steep. And, um, and um, after discussions with uh, my colleagues, we noticed that everybody is going through the same phase of embarrassment. And, uh, you know, first patient came in 2013 after phalloplasty. I had no idea what even to ask what was done, what was disconnected, a bunch of drains, a bunch of tubes. Um, and by about 2016 or 17, the idea came that probably everybody else have the same problem. So we're trying to uh, shorten this learning curve for everybody else. And it was a sort of a popular course because, you know, you see a patient with retention in the emergency room or somebody comes with a bunch of drains to the clinic. Uh, I think the worst thing to say is go back to whoever did this to you or go back to the, that plastic surgeon or maybe somebody comes with UTI or hematuria. I think it's a wrong thing. Now I'm thinking it's the wrong thing to say go back to the plastic surgeon that uh, did a phalloplasty because it might be many states away. And we as urologists, I think we can handle it. So between us, there is probably altogether maybe 20 to 30 years of learning curve, and we will compress it into the next two hours. So you, maybe you'll spend your next uh, 10 years more productively than we have, right? That's what about no, Thank you, thank you. No, I can't. So um, I think we can start, right? So we are supposed to read a disclaimer, and then there is a mandatory, first time mandatory uh, pre Pre-test, only six questions, multiple choice, easy. Thank you. Hi, I'm Richard Santucci. What Dimitri hasn't shared with you actually is pretty bad laryngitis. So <laughs> we're literally trying to limit the amount of speaking he has to do. So I'll do the mandatory read. No, it's because of my accent. It like says, yes. AUA policy states that all planners, authors, and presenters must disclose prior to their presentations all relevant financial relationships with any commercial interests. These disclosures are posted on the AUA annual meeting, me meeting website. Sorry, With easy access, please visit URL follows. Uh, course material are available at the AUA 2023 website or mobile app. No photos, video, or audio recordings are permitted. That is not actually very true. If you see a great slide you need to take a picture of, just take a picture of it. Oh, I never said that. Let's begin. 
members of our faculty. I'm Dmitry Nikolavsky. Erwin Kociancic. Paulina Rayblad and Dr. Richard Santucci. Everybody is a doctor, so <laughs> doctor, 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 doctor. Good afternoon, and thank you for making, because uh, there are a lot of good things to do in Chicago at 5 p.m., I know that. Um, I'm Paulina Rayblad, and my part is to go over some basics of gender care or gender health care and also uh, steps of uh, vaginoplasty. Then I think Irvin goes over complications of vaginoplasty, and then uh, these two guys are going to do phalloplasty and complications, right? That's our kind of uh, basic stuff. I apologize ahead of time. I have to leave at 5.30. So uh, also this course is live. It's not for you, but if somebody is out there watching it, you can, and you also can type, page, uh, type questions on the app, and we're supposed to monitor it and answer them. Or if you're here, just come to the microphone. Um, can you hit uh, Ray Blatt? That's it. Perfect. All right. Um, so I'm going to start with a very broad overview. And yeah, if you want to take pictures, take pictures. Uh, essentially saying, oh, and I want to see the timer. because You can start the timer because I promised Dmitry that I'm not going to go over time. <laughs> Got it. Uh, so transgender folks has been with us throughout uh, recorded history. And it's also a sort of a phenomenon or situation that's been around all over the map. So when people tell you that we see transgender patients because it's been on YouTube or on the news, or this is just, you know, uh, sort of a novel social media driven uh, phenomenon, is just not true. Um, and it's also definitely not an American uh, phenomenon as well, because there is a lot of interesting data and archaeologic data from 3,000 years ago, let's say in Iran, uh, in their cemeteries, you can see because uh, men and women were positioned in a certain way, and then they would found uh, skeletons that are clearly male skeletons, but positioned and dressed and things around them were as a female. So clearly this is not new. I also just read in um, 1300, they also found documents from Russia in 1300s, uh, evidence of transgender uh, people, uh, you know, being treated in some medical care. So again, that's been around the society for a long time. Also important to know that we're not talking about a huge number of patients. We And this survey is done about every two, three years, and all we're looking at is about 0.6% of population, which comes to roughly about 2 million patients. To put it in the perspective, this is about the incidence of urethral stricture disease, 0.6% of population. What you don't see is you know, uh, people with stricture disease, or let's say there are 80,000, uh, you know, bladder cancer cases, uh, spending about 80% of our legislature's time. Just uh, as a point of reference, and just in 2022, there were 171 legislative things on a docket just in this country uh, that had to do with anti-trans uh, bills and legislature. Uh, also, to give a little bit of a perspective that while, again, media wants us to believe that we're out there finding patients to operate on, uh, the reality is that most transgender folks are not seeking surgery or just considering surgery. A very small proportion will undergo gender-affirming surgery, and even a smaller proportion will undergo bottom surgery. So why it feels to us that our entire sort of existence is in the bottom uh, surgery kind of world, in reality, it's a small proportion of uh, transgender and gender non-binary people. Uh, this is a little bit about sort of how to address in uh, clinic situations because urology is inherently 
gendered, right? We're not like a dermatologist or allergist just deals with the issue in hand, but we have uh, organs that have assignment, right? Prostate is a, a male organ. Our reproductive anatomy is male or female. And it's important to remember that all the exams we do are traumatic for any patient, particular patients with prior history of sexual assault, whether there's uh, trans or cis. But in general, you need to approach every trans patient assuming that there's been some trauma in their life. And that gets us to this concept of TIC, or trauma-informed care, where you have to realize that impact of trauma has place, recognize it, integrate it in your practice, and try to avoid re-traumatizing the patient in clinic. What does it come to in a trans uh, sort of evaluation of a trans and non-binary patient, while I have like a lot of stuff written on the slide, one, two very simple things you can do is to avoid examining trans women standing, as how we're taught in most medical schools do a hernia exam on men, and uh, this is very triggering. Even more so triggering is uh, examining a trans men in lithotomy. If there's a strong dysphoria to uh, genitalia and pelvic exam, try to avoid re-traumatizing and sort of, you know, frog leg or supine exam probably is adequate because there's nothing you're going to really find there if you put a patient in lithotomy. Chaperones are important and a lot of sort of warning of what you're about to do. It's important to remember that uh, when patients sees you between the time they arrived in park and the time they're sitting actually in your room, they probably encounter like six other people at the parking lot, at the check-in, your clerk, your nurse. And if they've been misgendered or being sort of rude at during that time, by the time they are in your clinic, they already are not in the right place to have any kind of meaningful conversation and discussion. And it doesn't just uh, relate to gender-affirming surgery. If they come to see you for a kidney stone and they've already been misgendered or laughed at or uh, just not being felt welcome, this is not going to be a good interaction. There's a ton of resources out there for uh, training of your clinic staff uh, or your hospital staff. Some of it is organizational and uh, you can do it for the entire hospital. It's probably relatively costly. And some of it you can just go on these websites and get it and do your clinic uh, instruction with your nurses. That being said, if you do it once, six months later they will forget because you probably don't see a lot of trans patients in your clinic. So uh, you wanna repeat it like every other in-service. About every year, just run through this to make the place uh, friendly and appropriate for our patients. A little bit on history again. Uh, one, I just like uh, history, medical history. And two, I just wanted to say that this again did not start 10 or 20 years ago. Well, one of the first feminizing surgeries were done in Germany in the Institute of Sexual Health, and the first surgeon was Dr. Levy Lenz. And uh, the guy who ran the institute, the psychologist Magnus Hirschfeld, was considered to be the most dangerous man in Germany by Nazis. But just prior to 1937 and 1932, Germany actually paid for gender-affirming surgery. And the first patient was this person, Dora Richter, um, despite of most people thinking it was Danish girl. She, just was pretty and you know, got more uh, more attention. That's just life. Um, here, uh, uh, Sir Harold Gillis. If you're any familiar with plastic surgery, he's considered to be a father of plastic surgery or microsurgery. Uh, and he was a military physician during World War II. Did a lot of. Uh, war and trauma care, but this guy who then later became a physician like uh, Dr. Lawrence Michael uh, sort of reached out to him and he is considered sort of in, in uh, contemporary literature to be a first phalloplasty done in Europe. I have a feeling that uh, doing a lot of this sort of reading and research on history, there are probably things were done before that, but this is just what's been documented. 
a little bit on the guidelines, and you saw one of these uh, slides, we often refer to WPATH criteria, they're called standards of care. Uh, version 8 just came out this past, uh, past September, and it had important changes to the guidelines for gender-affirming bottom surgery, and I just highlighted uh, two major changes here. It used to be two letters, and now it's very, it's got simplified to needing one letter from a mental health professional documenting gender dysphoria and stability from medical or surgical treatment. And number two, again, historically, the duration of hormonal treatment was longer. Now the guideline is a six months of hormonal treatment if the patient is able and willing to, to be on hormones. So one letter, six months. This is for, um, you know, any testing and questions. Uh, these are our surgical sort of journey and options in terms of on the, on the masculinizing surgery, but these guys are going to talk about masculinizing surgery. We're going to address more of a feminizing surgery, and I'll focus on the bottom. Uh, we're talking about, we're going to talk about orchiectomy essentially and vaginoplasty. Uh, for a bilateral orchiectomy, uh, does not require any expertise outside of basic urologic training. You don't need to be a center of excellence or even, uh, right, a second or third year resident should be able to do that. There used to be a, a thought that if you do orchiectomy early, you will not be able to complete vaginoplasty later on because scrotal skin disappears. Well, scrotal skin does not disappear. And uh, if you have adequate amount of skin, Vaginoplasty is absolutely possible, plus we have a lot of other tools to proceed with vaginoplasty. Important things here uh, are that you do not need the sterilization consent, despite of what your nursing supervisors might think in your clin clinics or OR, but sometimes in the beginning it takes a little bit of convincing, though. Um, you make an incision, you do an orchiotomy, you close it, you're done. And then you check that the patient checks with their endocrinologist because if they're on spironolactone, they can stop it because there's no more testosterone to block. And then they can adjust uh, estrogen dosing. They do not need to stop their estrogen before surgery. Definitely not before orchiectomy and also not for vaginoplasty as well, which I'll address in a little bit. So in terms of vaginoplasty, the goal of vaginoplasty or full depth vaginoplasty is to create the vaginal canal that's lined with something that's not hair bearing or hair, or hair free. And then externally, you wanna have a sort of cosmetically, cosmetically appropriate or acceptable genital complex and a urethra that sits in the right place that allows you to urinate in a normal way. Uh, as you can see here, what I'm trying to highlight here, that you don't know if it's a full depth or a shallow depth vaginoplasty. Externally, it looks about the same. Uh, we can create a canal now using sort of three general principles. We can do a penile inversion vaginoplasty that can, uh, would use scrotal skin, uh, penile skin, or skin from any other sources if you have a skin shortage. My plastic surgeon prefers full, uh, split, uh, full skin graft sort of from, from creases. You can uh, approach it from a peritoneum line vaginoplasty where we use peritoneal lining. Uh, and uh, intestinal, uh, pedicalized intestinal flaps, not a novel approach, have been used in uh, oncology and in this sort of uh, adolescent uh, gynecology for many years. This is not novel. Um, and this is sort of a transition be, uh, time immediately at the end of the surgery. That's usually what the post-vaginoplasty patient would look like. Briefly, the preoperative course involves multiple steps. It's not like a, I don't know, appendectomy. You come in, you get surgery, you go home. To uh, ensure success of, uh, um, of these surgeries and recovery, we really make sure that uh, multiple steps take place, including uh, we have a virtual class with our PA and social worker who goes 
over uh, steps of surgery, complications, things that need to be done before and after surgery and post-op care. We ensure that patients go in the pathway for hair removal, and there's a post-surgery care plan, including meeting patients' caregivers. We've learned that if you operate on someone who doesn't have good nutrition, no home support, borderline homeless, their parents don't want them to come back home, there's, the surgery will just not be successful, plus patient won't have an adequate place to dilate. Uh, and this is the day of consultation before that. And uh, COVID definitely pushed us into a lot of virtual pre-work. And now uh, a lot of work is done by our PA and uh, case manager before patients come for a consultation, which allows us to have a consultation focused on uh, complications, surgeries, and really address the questions the patient has. And a couple of weeks before surgery, again, we go through this whole list of uh, stuff that you don't want to do at the time of surgery. FMLA paperwork, make sure the supplies, the long list of supplies they receive uh, to take care of home, that there, again, food is available, caregivers are available. And another part is, historically, we thought that we have to take patients off estrogen uh, due to potential hypothetical elevated risk to form a DVT. That turns out not to be the case. And taking folks off estrogen they've been on for six uh, months or 12 months or years essentially puts them in the menopause. And it leads to a very, very grouchy and unhappy state of being. So we've learned that not stopping estrogen does not increase the risk of DVT and uh, sort of changed our practice a couple of years ago. So briefly through the steps of surgery, and then I'm going to give it to Irvin for con uh, complications. Our generally for, for de novo or a new vaginoplasty, our approach is penile inversion, although now we're closer to 50-50 with uh, a, a robot-assisted perineal lining. And definitely perineal approach is being used uh, for, um, for, redo, uh, for redo approaches. So we take a, a scrotal graft and the plastic surgeon on the back table starts forming essentially a cap, right, or a proximal end of the vaginal canal, while I uh, take care of the first part of this as a creation of the space or canal creation. And uh, anatomically, we're going into this potential space. There's no space here, uh, essentially where the non fascia folds behind the prostate and between the prostate and the rectum. And a brief historic overview, if you haven't figured out, I really like medical history. So these two guys are being credited with development of radical prostatectomy. They're more sort of, you know, this guy is Hampton Hugh Young, who got a credit for uh, perineal radical prostatectomy for prostate cancer, and he's considered father of uh, urologic uh, surgery. Yet he actually learned it uh, from George Goodfellow, who uh, pioneered uh, perineal prostatectomy for BPH. And he traveled around the country teaching urologists how to do this, including Hampton Hugh Young. And in his first 78 cases, what do you think his mortality was? Oh, yeah, like 40%. Two people died. In 1894, he did 78 perineal prostatectomies with two deaths. So that tells you that he probably was a way better surgeon than we were. We are. But no light, right? No headlight, no bovie, just... No antibiotics. No antibiotics, just stick the Lowsley in there, take it out, put it together, and, you know, you're done. No anesthesia, probably, hopefully some anesthesia. But the idea is that they both realize that if you take uh, rectourethralis, uh, down, it gives you sort of the entrance into this uh, space because rectum is kind of suspended by the rectorurethralis to the apex of the prostate. If you take it down, 
anatomically correctly, it gives you that space. Remember, though, that our patients were not young patients because our patients are younger on long-term estrogens and their prostates are not 100 grams. So there's this little nubbin there that you try to get in anatomically, in an anatomically correct place. And nonetheless, it's, I mean, it's, it's a challenge. I have to say, uh, every case you have to take seriously. You take the rectory urethralis down, and once you drop the prostate, see, this is your finger in the rectum, you drop the prostate, it allows you to get into the space. And when you get into the right space, uh, there is this place on a, uh, in the Campbell's that's called pearly gates, the space between anterior and posterior layer of the non-VA's fascia. So when I was learning the surgery and somebody was telling me about it, I thought it's one of these you know, landmarks that your attending just makes up, and you're like, oh, yeah, yeah, I feel it. Uh, but in reality, there is a space. And if you look closely, there are two shiny layers. And if you're in the right place, you are going to kind of, and they come out separates very nicely if you are in that anatomically right place. So this is once I get the entry in the place, you have your hanger retractor kind of gently creating the canal uh, until you can slide the second one, really get there through the right angle, Haney. And now once you're all the way deep, you're kind of going to kind of rock it uh, to open the canal uh, to the full uh, width and depth. Once you do that, you also want to confirm integrity of the rectum. The last thing you want to see is your green uh, finger coming uh, from posterior wall. And once you confirm that, you're ready to pass sort of this on to a plastic surgeon to uh, proceed with a further reconstruction. Or you can do it yourself. Um, I just do it because it works in our practice like that. Um, uh, important note here is uh, there's a male and a female pelvis differences. And remember that vaginal canal sits in the loop of the levator annua or pubic oxygeus. In the male pelvis, that is much narrower and a sharper V. Uh, so when you make a canal, before you sort of move along, what you want to really do is to take down uh, branches or sides of pubic oxygeus to allow for the width of the canal for dilation and penetrative intercourse later on. If you don't do it, the natural tightness of the male pelvis and the sort of shape and the angle of the canal will make the dilation very, very difficult. Some intraoperative uh, challenges are highlighted here. Essentially, if you go too close on the bladder side, you can get in the urethra or the bladder. Uh, that is relatively easily corrected, and uh, you leave a catheter in a little bit longer, and for the most part, it will heal uneventfully. Rectal injury in itself definitely presents a bigger challenge, and historically, people, once they recognize the injury, would just abandon it, let everything heal, and sort of try it again, or try the approach, uh, anterograde approach. Um, We've uh, kind of proposed that if we keep the, uh, the muscle at the time of the dissection and if there is an injury, we close the injury and cover it with a uh, muscle uh, and proceed with surgery, that actually is an uh, ad adequate approach and prevents fistula formation. Luckily, I've only got to test it twice uh, in six years, and one was my partner's and one was mine actually recently, and it did work. We've, we've, uh, we properly repaired the rectum, covered it with the muscle, uh, completed the case, and then the only thing we did differently is we kept the packing in for an extra week. Uh, this is where we go to the component separation. You see the bulbocarinosis muscle is sort of still intact because we want to uh, preserve that. You take a neurovascular bundle off the corpora. There are two approaches here. You can either 
take the bundle and uh, take the sort of that dorsal strip of the uh, tunica and throw away everything else. If you like dissecting the bundle of the corpora, you can do that. It just takes a little bit more time and probably a little bit more traumatic to, uh, to the bundle. But I've done it both ways and sensation seems to be sort of anecdotally in my uh, numbers about the same. So you got the neurovascular bundle, orchiectomy was performed, the stumps of the corporal bodies were sort of transected and closed off. Uh, urethra is dissected off to the level of bifurcation, but we keep it long until we mature it uh, to the vaginal, anterior vaginal wall, and we taper the bulb. If you don't taper the bulb, it will continue bulging at the time of the arousal and uh, will make it one, uncomfortable, and two, difficult for penetration. Then we proceed with uh, forming a uh, clitoris using sort of the top of the glands and is uh, followed by the clitoral hood. And then this will be positioned, the neurovascular bundle needs to be folded and kind of secured so the clitoris sits in the appropriate space. Uh, and uh, then we connect the uh, original sort of that scrotal skin with the remaining penile skin and invert it, as I was showing earlier, straight in the canal that you've previously just made. Uh, once canal is in place, it gets packed, and then we make an incision right at sort of 12 o'clock where that speculum is. You take the speculum out, obviously. You make an incision, and that's where you bring in your clitoral complex and the urethra. Then you mature the urethra to this area, leave the catheter in, and then complete your uh, labia majora formation. And we went through several reiteration of uh, sort of formation, how to make labia majora and minora most co cosmetically appealing. We've changed significantly how we make clitoral hood uh, to make it more kind of naturally appearing as well. Right after surgery, like after every probably cosmetic reconstruction, we tell folks that everything is gonna be sort of swollen and beat up, you're gonna have bruises, scars take a little time to heal, but uh, at three to six months, things look uh, nice and healed if, uh, unless you, you get some complications that we'll hear about. The good thing about complications after vaginoplasty, most of them occur in the first four months and majority of them are self-limited, except the ones that we need to go back and address. A uh, few words on the uh, uh, robot-assisted peritoneal flap uh, vaginoplasty. It's originated from 1969 when David, Dr. Davidoff really explored it as an option for treatment of Meyer-Rakitansky syndrome for people who are born with blinded and vaginas. And then uh, slowly it uh, got adapted to a laparoscopic approach. And then ultimately Li Zhao and his group looked at it and uh, adapted it to this scenario of uh, creating a vaginal canal, you still need a little bit of a skin bridge to form the very distal part of the canal, and again, you use the scrotal tissue to make labia. Uh, so it's kind of fascinating that something that was created in 1969 uh, still is being used just for a different purpose. And this is where you take your flap of the peritoneum of the anterior wall and you take a little bit of the rectal wall. Briefly on the post-operative course, uh, the hospital stays now two days. People go home with a catheter and drains. They come back six days later for uh, teaching of dilation. Uh, and dilation is a long, sort of lifelong journey, definitely for these folks, uh, continuing, but just a lot less frequent once they passed uh, at one year. So hopefully after a couple of months, somebody looks well healed and their canal is nicely lined, epithelialized, it doesn't have a lot of granulation tissue. We'll hear about more about complications. These are most common complications that occur in the urologic uh, sort of space. And there are a number of cosmetic adjustments that can be done by um, uh, if those occur. 
So really briefly on prostate cancer, you had a question earlier. So prostate cancer definitely can occur in transgender patients, whether they've had a bottom surgery or not. Uh, estrogen blockade does not prevent one from developing a prostate cancer. Those numbers are very, very small, though. Probably estrogen blockade is helping to, uh, to avoid that. Uh, if you look at it, though, it mostly gets diagnosed pretty high uh, stages, right? The PSA at time of diagnosis is relatively high. So it's important to tell patients, especially young patients, that when they hit 40 or 45, I'll be long gone, maybe not dead, but but gone, and the, the rest of the world and healthcare records will forget that they have a prostate. They're the only person who is able to remind their practitioners that they need PSA screening. We also screen. Uh, we also do PSA screening of everyone over 45 before uh, undergoing a vaginoplasty. And this is a proposed mechanism, proposed guideline. It's not an AOA guideline by no means. But folks kind of did the data analysis, whatever limited data we have. And the idea is that in the estrogen, in the estrogen blockade or hormonally uh, blocked person, PSA should not exceed one. So if it's higher than one in a patient, you perform an MRI of the prostate, and if you have lesions, you biopsy them. If, you, if they haven't had the surgery, you biopsy them your regular way. If you've had surgery, you uh, use probably perineal approach and just consider your options. We historically say uh, if someone had a vaginoplasty, they should not uh, proceed with uh, with a prostatectomy, although I just talked to my uh, friend Mitch Sokolov, who just did two uh, radical prostatectomies on post-vaginoplasties, mm -hmm. and, they, and they did well. So we're going to dwell into it at some point. He says no fistula, no incontinence. It's hard for me to understand, but he had two patients, maybe you have a couple, so definitely things to uh, look into and think about. Uh, Last three slides specifically on sort of mental health outcomes. There is a strong sort of, I think, misconception there that once you do a bottom surgery, gender dysphoria just disappears, but it's a chronic condition. So gender dysphoria, uh, bottom surgery is a treatment but not a cure, and it's important for the patients to stay in touch with their mental health professionals, stay with their medications because their depression and anxiety is not going to go away just because now they have a gender congruent genitalia. Uh, we looked at the Medicare uh, listing and coding and found out that um, overall risk before and after gender-affirming surgery doesn't even change both for psychiatric admissions and suicide rates. Uh, and one more thing that uh, we hear a lot about uh, in this uh, space on uh, regret or change sort of their mind after surgery, which is different than the transitioning. I'm gonna only talk about regret. 27 studies together looked at almost 8,000 patients and saw that regret was identified in about 1% of patients. And for a frame of reference, I'll show this. The radical prostatectomy official regret is in this sort of in a 20% range. We don't stop doing radical prostatectomies because people regret doing it. Um, main reasons for regret, they're various. They actually interviewed 7,000 patients to understand that a lot of it is just an emotionally difficult place to be. There was some expectations that dysphoria will go away and life will be perfect, but life is not perfect. And there's some difficulties adjusting to uh, societal norms and people do regret having surgeries. Um, again, it's a treatment, but not a cure. Patients do need long uh, follow-up and continuity of care, standard of care of, uh, Eighth version is your friend, and U.S. Path will be meeting this November if you have more interest in this field. So, in conclusion, can you just mention the bottom line of the term after or before vaginoplasty? 
epidural uh, prostate cancer treatment after vaginoplasty or vaginoplasty after prostate cancer treatment. It's not questionable. Not questionable. What we do know uh, that if someone had a radical prostatectomy, we firmly believe that doing a vaginoplasty, full depth vaginoplasty after radical prostatectomy will carry an extremely high risk of incontinence and or radiation or uh, rectal injury and urinary injury. So in our sort of joint practices, we recommend patients after prior rectal or, or any colorectal surgery or uh, prostatectomy or radiation to go with a uh, zero depth or shallow depth vaginoplasty. That's been the recommendation. In terms of TERPs, uh, I have few patients in my practice who underwent a TERP after uh, vaginoplasty with very poor outcomes, mainly because as I showed you, you take the levator and I and you affect external sphincter doing the dissection. When you go and do a turf, which essentially is your internal sphincter, the incontinence in our experience is extremely high. Our numbers are low, but it feels like everyone has incontinence. You also have a super high risk, again, for a fistula formation, as Dmitry will tell you, he has patients with that. So uh, also most of these patients should not have big prostates big enough to require TERP. It's usually their practitioners recommended because they have voiding dysfunction and significant LUTs, and that gets kind of, they're being led into a TERP sort of field, but I don't think most of these patients need a TERP to begin with. And then you can put AUS. Right? And you cannot put AUS. Or a sling. Or a sling. Okay, this is all I got. Uh, this is our transgender, uh, gender-affirming team uh, at uh, Southern California, Kaiser, our surgeons, uh, PA, case manager, social worker, and department administrator. That's it. Thank you. Yes, it's good. Oh, sorry. Can we go? Yeah. Who of you is performing uh, gender surgery? Who wants to perform gender surgery? None. Why are you guys here? <laughs> Who would like to fix complications? Oh, complications gender of gender surgery. Good, complications, okay. So uh, I'm gonna talk about the complications. Uh, Polana just gave you a great overview on how we can do our surgeries. Uh, all our patients have this kind of outcome. They're all perfect, beautiful vaginas after surgery. Keep in mind that the patient uh, remembers this at the end of the consultation. And uh, we are spending almost an hour in uh, going into a deep detail uh, about the complications possible complication, including doing the test that you just had. When I, we asked the patient to repeat exactly the complications, the things that can go wrong, and they will still say, but it's not gonna happen to me, no? So is, is, am I gonna have this type of result? So you need to be very careful the patient understands what uh, type of complications you can have. Now, there are a lot of uh, papers uh, dealing with uh, complication and outcomes of our vaginoplasties, and this is a list of and the numbers that I'm quoting to my patients. You may have a neovaginal stricture, 12% uh, of introitus, 7% elsewhere. You can lose the whole skin that you use for a neovagina, uh, up to 4% of cases. You can have up to 3% of cases of uh, clitoral necrosis. Fortunately, fistula rate is pretty low. 
uh, you can have a prolapse uh, or meatal stricture. Some of them are really easy to manage, like stricture of the meatus, moving the meatus up and down. A uh, patient is um, maybe at the time of the vaginoplasty, you're not placing the meatus in the proper position, so the patient is not uh, uh, able to urinate in a sitting position properly. So those are minor complications, but neovaginal stenosis, losing uh, of, the, um, of the neovaginal depth or the fistula are uh, big problems. And uh, uh, you can use, uh, just using a skin uh, and, uh, as a full thickness uh, graft, it's not a good idea because the rate of vaginal stenosis is significantly higher compared to using flaps. So if you, I don't know if you're familiar with the molecular cuisine, uh, when they take uh, like a good plate of pasta, this is where I'm from originally, where the pasta was uh, improved, not invented, because apparently came from China, uh, from Marco Polo, no? Uh, so they take the essence of the plate and then they deconstruct it and then they usually are very hungry after the, the meal and you pay big bills. But this is what the vaginoplasty is. It's an orchectomy, a radical panectomy, perineal prostatectomy, uh, meatoplasty, and labioplasty and clitoroplasty. All of these uh, uh, different segments of the, uh, of the surgery, uh, in all of this uh, something can go wrong. And you have to be able to avoid these problems or uh, um, uh, manage them when uh, they occur. Let's start with the rectal injury. The best way to manage, uh, to prevent rectal injury is to see what you're doing. Paulina just saw, show you the, some tricks. Uh, I am uh, um, experienced enough to uh, be trained in doing perineal uh, uh, radical prostatectomies. And I use these skill sets in my surgeries. I still am horrified seeing uh, some of our colleagues blindly accessing uh, the space in between the rectum and the prostate and the, and the bladder, hoping that nothing's going to happen. You usually, hope and uh, good outcomes are not good companions. The easiest thing is to see what you're doing so that you can actually dissect and uh, uh, prevent uh, this complication. And what is, what is the safest way to go? We just had a discussion uh, with, uh, with Richard, so it depends uh, what your training is. If you're a urologist, you're going to fo uh, follow the urethra because this is what we are trained to do. If you're a colorectal surgeon, you are very confident in going uh, uh, and following the anterior rectal wall. Uh, if you are like old enough, uh, you can follow these uh, steps here. So you identify the denum via fascia after you uh, incise the, the puboerectralis, which is the narrowest point of connection between the rectum and, uh, and the urethra. After you remove that, it's very easy to uh, identify this fascia. It's white, it's solid, gives you a nice uh, safety feeling. And then you just uh, uh, mobilize it here. Uh, usually I incise the, this is the, the posterior uh, aspect of the denovia fascia. It's very robust. And you can actually then, under direct vision, see what you're doing. You dissect the space, you go up to the level of, uh, the, of the reflection of the perineal cavity. And uh, uh, this is the space that you need. You're going to have two more things uh, to dissect there, which is the lateral part. Uh, when the case is difficult, uh, because the patient is obese, you don't see nice, obtain first the good visualization. So go laterally first, uh, get rid of the excessive fat, incise the muscles of the pelvic floor, and then you can develop this uh, easily. There is no rectum laterally. Rectum is immediately, it's right in front of you. So if you start laterally and then connect this area immediately, you're going to reduce the uh, chance of uh, damaging the rectum. Uh, Neoclitoris necrosis is uh, possible. Uh, this is uh, how you can dissect the, 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 the neurovascular bundle. 
there are advantages and disadvantages of doing it this way. Uh, usually it's less bloody when you just dissect the, um, the neurovascular bundle from the cavernous bodies. Uh, but this can become a little bit uh, um, too skinny, the dissection. So you need to be careful how you're folding this when you're creating the bundle, because basically you're preparing the space into the skin of the hypogastrium so that you can then reflect uh, distally back the, the neoclitoris. Uh, uh, and this angle can actually be the cause of the, uh, of the necrosis. Neovaginal stenosis, uh, it's a big problem. That's why our patient needs to be committed to uh, self-dilation for the rest of their life. And using a substitute to the penile inversion uh, uh, technique uh, does not prevent uh, stenosis. They still need to do dilation. There are a lot of patients coming, uh, asking specifically for, I want to have a sigmoidal uh, neovagina, I want to have a bowel neovagina, peritoneum, thinking that this is not going to require uh, dilation, but this is wrong, because also they uh, would uh, um, develop stenosis at the level of the introitus. So all of them require some sort of dilation. I'm going to show you uh, uh, some uh, cases. Uh, this is a patient, for instance, that developed uh, a severe loss of, uh, actually, uh, actually total loss of the skin that uh, was uh, used uh, uh, two weeks in the post-op. So uh, there was like a cavity that was not covered with anything. So I used an, uh, um, an allograft, skin allograft. Uh, I um, freshened the margins here. Uh, I use um, the uh, cadaveric skin, decellularized as a socket, and you put this uh, inside uh, there. I secure this uh, in the, um, the most proximal portion with the uh, same stitches that I, I would use for like a, a proximal urethroplasty when you're doing the, the, the blood and neck reconstruction from the perineum. Uh, I transfer this, uh, um, these stitches into the, this uh, allograph that I prepared. I stabilize this laterally just to create this, uh, um, the uh, quilting uh, sutures so that they can, uh, the, the graft would uh, then uh, survive and uh, get uh, the neovascularization and the uh, imbibition first and then gets re-epitalized from the surrounding tissue. Uh, I have, the, so urethra is covered, so it's uh, uh, underneath the, the, the drape on top, so you can see some uh, suturing, which is uh, not difficult, it's uh, right in front of you. You can stabilize it, uh, you pack it, uh, in the same way as I was packed for the, uh, after the, the primary vaginoplasty. I do use my packing for uh, five days. I don't know how you guys, are, how long are you packing? Five, seven days. Day six, so there is no science in this, so it's still the art of surgery and how you do it. Six. You do a surgery on Wednesday, it's, and right. Tuesday is a clinic day. <laughs> and uh, uh, you're going to see then uh, uh, shortly that uh, this gets uh, re-epitalized uh, by the surrounding tissue. It's going to actually recreate the epidermidis uh, that is uh, uh, needed uh, to create this, uh, uh, this cavity. Again, I was able to regain the full 15 centimeters of length. This is like a few uh, days, a few weeks after there was a small dehiscence. And you can see here, the skin is actually getting, uh, is colonizing this uh, uh, graft here and uh, substituting uh, with uh, a viable tissue. Uh, if you don't want to go that route, you can, uh, uh, Polina mentioned this, uh, you can borrow skin from other parts of the, of the body. Um, this is uh, a patient that uh, developed uh, stenosis a different patient, uh, and uh, so we uh, augmented this uh, neovagina using the peritoneal flap. 
and uh, address the, um, the enteroitus stenosis with uh, uh, full thickness uh, uh, skin graft. Uh, again, it's a great option, it's right there, uh, but creates some additional scarring on the patient and some patients uh, uh, are uh, not very happy with uh, excessive scarring with this. But it's, uh, it's something that uh, you need to have in your skill set so that you can actually tailor to exactly what the patient is needed. Uh, is ne needing in that uh, time. Now, uh, use of peritoneum is very, became very popular. Uh, uh, we, you can use a peritoneum in two uh, ways. So you can use it uh, as a primary, during the primary vaginoplasty, uh, and I use this in, uh, uh, in skin insufficiency. So if there's uh, not enough skin to deal with uh, to begin with, uh, I, I, we combine this. So I do the vaginoplasty, I do it in the intradelenable position, so we're not adding operative time. Uh, combining while my, this is done with a single port, uh, while my colleague uh, is developing the, the two flaps, anterior and posterior uh, peritoneal flap, and which then easily anastomosed uh, to the skin that I bring uh, from below. Uh, or you can use this uh, as a salvage procedure. So if patient that had a vaginoplasty already done with the skin, um, neglected the protocols about uh, vaginal dilation, developed the stenosis and wants to regain the length, uh, this patient is a good option to do the vaginoplasty using this peritoneal flap, which is basically a modification of a Davidoff, original Davidoff procedure. Now, one of the advantages, I do operate, uh, uh, I don't have limits for the BMI or age in my patients. Um, one of the advantages of having this uh, in, like combined perineal and transperitoneal approach is that you can actually uh, increase the space that you are using, and you actually uh, increase also the safety in the preparation of that, uh, that area. Uh, for instance, you can, if you're doing this uh, through the perineum, you, you can remove the seminal vesicles, which sometimes are the reason for uh, uh, some problems in uh, gaining the space uh, or reaching these uh, two uh, cavities. Or in patients that previously had, uh, I did uh, have patients uh, after previous uh, uh, radical prostatectomy that we did the vaginoplasty. So having this uh, uh, combined view from the peritoneum and from the perineum, it's, uh, I feel, much safer for the patient to avoid uh, uh, causing uh, problems. It's safer than surgery, don't. Don't do it, but if the patient needs, you can do it. There are so many or other options to treat prostate cancer, it's very hard for me to... Uh, this was a patient that had prostatectomy before vaginal. Oh. Yeah. So Be this is a case of prolapse. Prolapse is actually pretty uncommon, but it's present. This was a case that uh, we did uh, in, uh, uh, in, uh, in Brazil. Uh, I've never seen a vaginoplasty done in this way, where they preserve the whole uh, glance and uh, the... I have one from Mexico the same way. The majority of the, uh, of the, um, of the corpora as a sensory uh, element in the dome of this uh, neovagina. Uh, of course, she... As she's getting older, she starts prolapsing, so you can see this pin is coming uh, from the uh, vaginal cavity inside, out. And um, so we did a nice study. Uh, we did, uh, I, I was not sure what I'm going to encounter in during the surgery, so, but uh, it's actually feasible here. Basically, what I did, I reconstruct, de-reconstructed the whole thing, I, uh, and I did the same thing as I would do with, an, uh, with uh, uh, a clitoris, a neoclitoris uh, formation. Uh, mobilize the glands. Uh, he's a little bit trickier because he's deep into the cavity. You prepare the neurovascular bundle. It's uh, a little bit more difficult, but feasible. And then I transpose this neoclitoris on top of the, uh, of the meatus, where it should be. 
usually clitoris is not sitting uh, uh, below the, the ureter meatus. Uh, I design here the neoclitoris. I get rid of the, uh, of the cavernous bodies, which was actually kind of fun exercise with this uh, small cavity. Uh, here is the mobilization of the, of the neurovascular bundle. Unfortunately, I cannot uh, run fast to this. You, I created the clitoris, I transpose it. And the patient is actually, uh, how long is now, uh, Paolo? Like a couple of years after surgery? Three years after surgery with uh, a sensitive clitoris and uh, uh, maintaining the depth of this uh, reconstructive, uh, reconstructive vagina. I removed the cavernous bodies from here. You see this is uh, the cavernous body coming out. The corpora. I was surprised because they left basically the whole penis there up to the cruise. This is now transposed on top so that it looks uh, more cis like a cis-vagina, cis-introitus uh, uh, in this case. So it's, uh, once you know the anatomy of the area and you're familiarized with these uh, techniques, uh, you can use them and transpose them in what the patient needs. This is my whole point in uh, having different techniques available, ready for the cases that, uh, that you're treating. I think we can skip uh, the... It's pretty self-explanatory, I, I cannot go to that. Uh, when this is uh, um, not enough for the patient, uh, you cannot use the peritoneum or because you use it before or there is not uh, enough uh, skin to, uh, to connect with this, uh, you can use actually uh, substitute this with, uh, with the bowel. You can use any portion of the bowel. You can use ileum, right colon, left colon, uh, sigma. Um, there are some contraindications, for instance, of course, malignancy in the, in the bowel. Inflammatory bowel disease makes actually the whole vaginoplasty uh, a very, how can I say, acrobatic surgery, and I don't think it's very wise to uh, proceed in these cases or if the patient has previous radiation. Also, I have patients that uh, I don't like to uh, say a patient is uh, non -op not operable, but in this case, I really try to um, dissuade the patient to go for a full depth vaginoplasty. I said, you can use any segment of this, and you can use any technique uh, with this, open laparoscopic, robotic, or combined. This is uh, a use of a sigma. Uh, you can uh, mobilize the mesosigma. It's uh, usually, it's probably the most frequently uh, performed neovagina, intestinal neovagina in the US. Uh, I learned this actually from um, Igor Vaz, who is uh, 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 a great, uh, uh, reconstructive surgeon in Senegal. No, no Senegal, in uh, Mozambique. Mozambique, sorry, Mozambique. And uh, uh, he, we were talking about fistula. And he said, we have a huge fistula problem. And say, when you have a huge fistula, there's no vagina, uh, just focus on the bladder. Reconstruct the bladder, use all the tissue that you need there. And, uh, um, and they can actually substitute then the vagina with, uh, with sigma. So this is what is happening here. You mobilize, you uh, take it out, and you make the, the introitus. Still, this can stenose at the, at the introitus level, so they also need uh, the dilation. You can use the right colon, as you can see here. Uh, you mobilize the, 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 the right colon as you do it on the other side. You, uh, the, the disadvantage of the right colon is that uh, you are going to jeopardize all the, ups, uh, the metabolism of the vitamin B and uh, uh, iron. So it's a little bit uh, trickier. But again, at the end, the result is, uh, uh, the functional result for the neovagina is, uh, is the same. You can measure it in different ways. You can use this also laparoscopically if you are not uh, 
uh, if you don't have uh, robotic access, and uh, you, he, they get rid of the appendix, uh, and they transpose down and go to the, um, obtain a, a bigger uh, and longer uh, neovaginal depth. This is how you enter the cavity. And then you just uh, take the uh, segment of the bowel down and you do an osmosis uh, at the vestibulum. You can use the same thing with the ileum. Uh, the, the disadvantage of using the sigma is that, uh, I just learned this from uh, our colorectal surgeons, is that uh, the functional sigma uh, produces uh, um, bigger secretion and produces some issues with, uh, um, uh, with uh, cancerization. So it's, it's a bigger problem than uh, using the ileum. Ileum produces a lot of secretion at the beginning, but then it stops. Uh, I don't think helium is very popular in the US, uh, but uh, Europe, uh, especially in Netherlands, uh, this is the, one of the most frequently performed neovaginas uh, when they are not using the, the penile skin. Again, helium, any urologist, uh, it's almost any urologist able to use the helium for, their, for our diversions. Uh, we are very familiarized with this, and you have a, no, a lot of this, so you can actually mobilize it uh, pretty far down. You can make an osmosis, a double barrel thing. You take it out and then you do your, you can see here, the uh, full depth. Let's go into the conclusion. What is the advantage, the goal of this is to make a longer depth. And if you compare uh, um, vaginoplasties, uh, intestinal vaginoplasty with non-intestinal, they do have longer length. So if the patient has length, and I have some patients, they come with the pictures of the penis of their partners, uh, asking to accommodate this. No, you spend an, another hour just to manage their expectation. But if they want to have longer neovaginas, this is the, the way to go. These are the, it's self-lubricating, but uh, has less tendency to the stenosis in general, but they do have stenosis at the introitus. The disadvantage is that you require abdominal surgery, the anastomosis, ileus, a leak, and bleeding. So in conclusion, penis skin inversion is still the most investigated and performed technique with great functional and cosmetic outcome. Uh, they might require some additional surgery, uh, but if something goes wrong, be, sh be ready to uh, offer all the techniques that we are using in the reconstructive urology and reconstructive surgery in general to address them. And uh, don't be afraid uh, to, to uh, refer the patients to centers uh, where they have uh, bigger experience with this. Thank you very much. So, um, something that was not discussed, but most common presentations to a general urologist would be urinary obstruction, maybe from a stenosed meatus. It's not a big deal, you can dilate it. It's, you treat it as a perineal urethrostomy. So, you would dilate. If you want to treat it besides dilation, it's very easy to do just a meatotomy and mature it. So, that's number. If you're really not comfortable with that, you could always play suprapubic tube. Number two presentation, maybe patient had a surgery somewhere else, presents to you, presents to the emergency room with wound dehiscence. Yes, wet to dry, dressing changes, but please don't tell patient to stop dilating because once they stop dilating uh, soon after surgery, the vagina, the neovagina will be obliterated. So I think this is two take-home points. Uh, you could treat, you could manage uh, urinary complications, and you could manage wound complications, even if you don't do primary surgery. Uh, but just don't tell them to stop dilating. 
if, if that's the only thing that you, you take from here, this is number one and number two. Uh, we have time for maybe one or two questions for now, and we'll, we'll have more time at the end. Do, do, do you have any questions? And I would say number three complication that I see very often is, uh, let's say, non-urologists may have done vaginoplasty. They will shy with the, uh, cutting the urethra too close, in their opinion. They leave behind too much corpus uh, spongiosum, and so patient complains of urinating upwards and uh, bulging with excitement. I think any urologist can just do a little bit of meatotomy and finish creating perineal urethrostomy like you would otherwise do. It's a very easy, uh, very satisfying 15-minute operation, and patient will, patients will love you. So this is three, three take-home points. Thank you. And uh, if there is no questions, we'll continue with the uh, uh, musculinizing surgeries. Thank you. Dr. Santucci. Thank you. I would add a fourth point, which is that if you're seeing someone else's patient, just call them. Just call the clinic and say, I'm Dr. So-and-so. Tell them to give me a call. And we'll talk you through it. We'll, oh, that guy, yeah. I think you should do this or that. Um, it's... Uh, it's funny, we urologists, we actually don't talk to each other half as much. I, I'm a referral type urologist, I'm a reconstructive urologist. People just send me a patient, no words, no anything, just send them, like I'm magic, ESP, you know? Yeah, and so really just call any of us and we'd be happy to, uh, to talk about it. So um, I was a reconstructive urologist for 18 years and out of the corner of my eye, I saw the most interesting reconstructive urology that was happening, but I wasn't doing it. Uh, so I tricked Kurt Crane into hiring me, and then that worked out well because I had a big toolkit, and then they were extremely high volume. So I could see case, 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 uh, and it really, really uh, worked out uh, for me. We are a high volume practice. Uh, this is a little bit old data, but you know we're doing more than 100 phalloplasties a year. I do about uh, one to two phalloplasties a week. A lot of vaginoplasties, mostly by my partner. I probably only do 25 vaginoplasties a year. Uh, they do a lot of top surgery. I do not. Um, I do a lot of penile implants. Uh, 50 was my number for a long time. I did 99 last year. Uh, and about that same number of medoidioplasty, small number of medoidioplasty, but that's good because people have to travel to get phalloplasty because there's not a ton of phalloplasty centers everywhere, but they don't necessarily have to travel from medoidioplasty. So I actually consider that to be a feature, not a bug. Um, you know, in the land of the blind, the one-eyed man is king. Uh, and so what I learned was that there was an almost comically thin uh, literature uh, in this field. When I first started this six years ago, I endeavored to read every single paper ever written, uh, and it took me a weekend. Uh, so it's really a very fertile place to discover things and talk about it in the literature. Uh, we have two, happen to have two locations uh, with uh, four surgeons in Austin, Texas, and two surgeons in San Francisco. There's some micro team as well, which I'm not including. We're adding two more this summer. Um, most of the Austin group is probably moving. Uh, we believe that transgender surgery will be made illegal this week in Texas. So you still can't get an abortion in Texas. Uh, so the Christian nationalist wing of the right wing weirdo party has come in uh, and, uh, and flexed their muscles. Um, the, you know, the, 
the forearm phalloplasty has been called the gold standard, uh, and it probably is, although there's lots of reasons to do other uh, phalloplasties. And basically, in many ways, you're sort of recapitulating uh, the um, same thing that happens in the embryo. So the labia majora are turned into the scrotum, the labia minora are turned into the, uh, to the at least proximal uh, urethra, and then the phallus itself, using the tube within a tube uh, mechanism, uh, is makes a long urethra, and then you hook those two things together. Um, the uh, there there is some uh, sort of thought to how we do this. So that's uh, we we take the urethra from the most hairless portion of the arm. We make a little urethral tab. You know, if you made this even, it would suck in there, and it'd be quite hard to sew. This is a skinny patient, as you can see, but uh, we might have trouble too reaching the pars fixa urethra in a heavier patient. So that uh, urethral tab does uh, does us a lot of good. We deepithelialize this portion, and then so here's tube one to make the urethra, tube two to make the fallow with the deepithelialized portion in between. Between here and here, we actually leave all of that dermis intact because we want good blood supply to that uh, to that area. Uh, the design of that flap is uh, important. Um, th this is sort of uh, mid-surgery where the entire flap is hanging on just by its nerve artery uh, and vein. And uh, it never ceases to amaze me that uh, in the middle of the operation, there's a fully functional phallus uh, with uh, great blood supply pulsing away uh, after creation of the urethra and flipping around the skin to make, uh, to make the phallus. Afterwards, uh, we put a skin graft on there and then a wound vac. We can put Integra, which is a uh, dermal uh, regeneration matrix under that. The problem is it costs $12,000, I think. Uh, we browbeat the company into giving it to us for $6,000, but that's still an out-of-pocket expense for the patient, and most people choose not to do it. We were like, what is it, made out of uranium? I mean, it's a uh, 12th, what are you talking about? Um, so I start the morning between the legs or around 7.30 or 8 in the morning, and by 11, I'm done doing the vaginectomy, urethral lengthening, scrotum. The whole time, the micro team has been working on the arm, uh, and often they're ready, actually, for me to flip over and start to make the urethra, start to make the phallus, and they're going into the groin to uh, develop the vessels to hook into. So I think this surgery is maybe... 16 person hours of work. If one person just sat down and threw it every stitch in, we're getting this done in about six hours with a three person team uh, that does it, you know, twice a week. Um, so uh, here's the future flaps to make the uh, to, to make the uh, scrotum with, and then the labia minora are just sort of rolled together. Uh, the clitoris, which used to be a downward facing structure hooked in by a lot of tissue, is now hooked in by no tissue. Um, and then ultimately I'm going to make a landing zone, a new hole up here, uh, right over the symphysis pubis, and that's going to be, uh, translocated up there. My, my hardest job actually is with my naked eye, cause I don't wear loops, uh, I have to find a good clitoral nerve for the, uh, plastic surgeons to hook into. So the nerve is isolated very carefully in the arm, and then those things are, uh, hook, hooked together. Um, and believe me, they don't tease me at all if I don't get them a good nerve. They never mention it. No, no, they, they torture me. Um, in this picture, it's chosen because you can see the nerve well, but uh, I can tell you, you can't always see the nerve well. I have some strong feelings about how you make a scrotum. I think there's a right way and a wrong way. 
uh, in the old days, uh, this flap would be, we would, they would cut up here and then make this scrotum in, in sort of in between the legs. It would be bifid. Patients are extremely unhappy with this. I can promise you because they come to me and I have to fix it and it's really hard to fix. So I'm a big fan of the so-called YV plasty technique. Uh, where uh, the incision is made down here and then the flaps are transposed up here to make a really uh, aesthetic scrotum not stuck in between the legs. Uh, I feel strongly about this. Uh, this is a great picture of micro. This is exactly, you understand everything you need to know about micro. It's just two microsurgeons muttering to each other for like 40 minutes. Um, I am this guy now. I'm the assistant with microsurgery, uh, which is horrible for the microsurgeons, I'm sure. Um, and, you know, the, I think the most important thing about this operation is it really works well. So you get an aesthetic phallus um, and uh, good scrotum. This scrotum you can see is, you know, it's a heavy patient. is not crammed in between the legs. It's, it's up and out. Um, you know, good glands. Uh, really, the whole thing uh, just sort of works. Um, now, we can do that entire story on the leg. So if we do it in the arm, we can do it in the leg. Um, every human being has a artery that goes from their assis down to the uh, lateral aspect of their, of their knee. So if you just draw a line there, there will always be an artery there. And then it has little perforators, so-called sprinkler heads, which keep that part of the, uh, the skin alive. Um, uh, after they uh, take this flap, they then put it under the muscles, and then I start to make the urethra and the rest of the phallus. You're already seeing a problem with this. What's the problem? It's too thick. Uh, we need, uh, the, the, the reason why the arm is so beloved is that even when this is well done, that is a pretty damn girthy phallus. And so we have to do between one and three other procedures to make that phallus less girthy. We do liposuction on it. You know, when I first started, uh, Dr. Crane was showing me liposuction and I was checked out. I'm like, yeah, some plastic surgery thing. I don't do liposuction. And then about halfway through, I was like, oh no, I'm gonna have to do this. I better start paying attention. Uh, so we liposuction it, and then after liposuction, the skin envelope will loosen a little bit, and maybe you can do a little plication and make it smaller still. Um, but what we really prefer is that people, either we help them choose or they choose, that if you're heavy, you don't pick an ALT, uh, and if you're really skinny, maybe ALT is perfect for you. Okay, let's jump. Let's jump to medoidioplasty. I think medoidioplasty is one of the silliest words that we use, and it's because it's based on the Greek. I don't know why doctors talk in Greek, uh, but we do. Uh, and it means towards the male uh, presenting genitalia. Um, and really, it's all that stuff is in there. Uh, you're just unbearing it like uh, taking the turtle's head out of the uh, turtle shell. Medoidioplasty has some real advantages. So if you are a trans man who's thinking, you know, it's a bummer for me to have a uterus. We should probably get that out. And, you know, have, being a man and having a vagina is cramping my style. Okay, let's get that out. Um, I guess men have scrotums. Get me one of those. Uh, men stand to pee. You never had any idea that standing pee was so important. It is very important to these folks. Uh, and so medoidioplasty uh, has the advantages of, of solving all of those problems in one pretty reasonable operation. Uh, it takes me about three hours to do medoidioplasty. It's an outpatient surgery. Uh, and so uh, for the right patient, uh, it, it really does uh, work well. Same thing you've seen already. So the labia minora is going to become uh, the urethra. 
Um, there's a pretty important step here where this urethral plate is cut uh, back, you know, Perovich and, and, and Georgievich, uh, when they were almost not exactly pioneering, but something like pioneering this procedure, they were putting buckle graft in there because they certainly knew how to take buckle graft. But I just used the heineken Michelitz principle and I cut laterally, close longitudinally, and you'll get two or three centimeters of extra length there. Um, and then uh, you try, uh, it's, at this point, it's a hypospadias repair, and you just try your tensionless, roomy, multiple-layer hypospadias repair. Um, they will get fistulas here at times, but they're really low-key fistulas. I always say you could fit a grain of rice through it sideways. Uh, not, not big fistulas at all, pretty easy to fix. There are other fistulas that they get uh, more proximally, which are way more serious. And uh, what you can get out of that operation uh, is uh, attractive to the patient. So this former clitoris is now very much looking like a phallus. It is much higher up uh, in the body. Um, I have already told you that my aesthetic for scrotums is very strict. So this scrotum is way up and out. It is not crammed in down between the legs. So if you put this thin patient, put his legs together, that scrotum would be on top of the thighs and not stuck uh, underneath it. The former vagina is now a flat male-type perineum. Um, now, it is pretty important to do a second-stage surgery here. Now, if the second-stage surgery, well, if the patient desires testicular implants, and almost everybody does, you can't be putting those in in that first uh, stage. You know, those things will spit out the, that complicated urethral uh, correction, complicated scrotal flap surgery, uh, and it won't work. So I make them wait six months, and then I put in uh, the testes. But I take advantage of that operation to, A, fix any complications. Maybe they have a non-healing wound in the vagina area. I'm going to take care of it. Maybe they have a fistula. I'm going to take care of it. And then I do a bunch of different elements, which I will show you. And they're based on obese cis male buried penis operations. So when I was taught this procedure, you know, six years ago, they were showing me, oh, this is what we do. And I was like, no, no, I know how to do this. This is just a buried penis operation. We need to lift everything up. We need to do an escutcheonectomy. Uh, and so I will um, uh, customize the surgery and do what needs to be done. But uh, interestingly, based on, you know, former 400 pounders, um, there are a couple types of uh, testicular implants just for your information. Uh, Coloplast makes a saline-filled one. This was the sort of state-of-the-art for a long time. But at least two companies make solid silicon implants, um, which are, to me, much easier to deal with. Uh, they're softer. People like them more. You can never rupture them. Uh, they're really nice. So they're the ones that we use. Um, so this is a really good example of finished meta and and then now I'm going to do a second stage meta. So let's look at all the problems. The, the, the phallus is actually pretty long. It's just pointed downward. There's this what I call upper scrotal blocking tissue. So the upper scrotum, like phallus there, upper scrotum here. So we got to get rid of that. This thin patient has a pretty darn prominent mons. And so if I do, if I take out a palm-sized piece of tissue there, defat the whole area, I'm able to pull the whole genital unit up I'm able to uh, make an oval incision up here and get rid of the upper scrotal blocking tissue. I need to put the testes implants in somewhere, and so I'll use that same incision. No additional incisions required. And then if they have any core D, it's quite easy to cut the, the sort of scar 
uh, looks like a guitar string of scar and uh, free up the cordy. And you can see there's an absolutely massive difference uh, in that third stage. So here's another perfectly good meta, but uh, not quite there, right? Long phallus, good scrotum, upper scrotal blocking tissue, everything's a bit low. How about we put in testes implants through that incision, so we've actually done kind of an oval incision, removed tissue, brought the skin together, so upper scrotal blocking tissue gone, uh, pretty big oval of skin brought uh, taken off here, the whole area defatted, and everything lifted up north. So um, I'm, I'm quite proud of this. This is probably the only thing I brought to the field, uh, just because I used to operate on really heavy people. Um, and this is the third patient. Uh, I said fairly typical second stage. That's bull. That's an excellent second stage. Uh, if all my patients looked like that, I'd be super, super, super happy. Um, okay. Now, strap in. We're going to talk about penile implants. So uh, we wait nine months uh, after the, uh, any uh, phalloplasty. We just want people to be totally healed. And really, six months after their latest surgery, what if they get a urethral stricture or urethral fistula repair? Sometimes those fail. You want those to fail in the past because you really can't fix those if there's an inflatable penile implant uh, in. And then you need to make sure that all your goals are met. Here is another ALT patient with an absolutely enormous phallus. I have an eight and a half size glove. That is a big, big phallus. So I'm going to need to do one or two procedures on that patient to get that smaller. They're not going to be ready uh, until that's the right um, area. So when I came into this space, the complication rate of a penile implant at two and a half years was 45%. So 45% of people had their penile implant removed at two and a half years. That was pretty bleak. Uh, and so what I did was, well, first I do phalloplasty. So I think I didn't make mistakes other people made because I sort of know where all the goodies were in there. And secondly, I looked in the literature and I just did every last little thing that had ever been shown to decrease complication rate. I look like a crazy person. I am irrigating with Iricept. I'm changing my gloves. I'm not letting anything touch the skin. Um, you know, uh, I'm making sure they get vancogen. You know, here's a question for the audience. So there was this really good study recently that said that the pathogen in, in infection was actually fungus in much more than you, much higher percentage than you would think it would be. And they, and they said in this paper, very sloppily in my opinion, add an antifungal. Okay, what antifungal? Do I have to give them amphotericin and pre-op? Can I just give them oral? What, what antifungal? So if anyone in this audience knows what antifungal, please find me. I need to know that information. Uh, at this moment, I still just use vancomycin and genomycin. Um, we're using Iricept, uh, which is basically just chlorhexidine, not because it's been proven to work, uh, in this field because it hasn't. Uh, it's just that the ortho guys who are much better than we are at following and worrying about infection said it's much better. So we took their literature and we said, okay, great. Um, the other thing that's really important in this is that the phallus, so the, the, the prosthesis is going to be affixed to the bone. So it is no good to have a prosthesis fixed to the bone and then a phallus an inch and a half lower than that. You get a zany, you know, S-curve and that's just not going to work. I think the uh, stiffness of the uh, prosthesis won't be very good. Um, 
And so I spend a lot of time in trouble figuring out how much height do I need to get. And while I normally might make a, a even much smaller incision than this to do the whole thing, I will take an opportunity to take off some skin and lift up that phallus and bring it into the right um, uh, place. I am not going to lecture this audience on what a penile implant looks like. Um, this is my favorite part of the operation, not. This is where I take a cold steel and I cram it up this incredibly complicated structure with an artery and a vein coming in and a urethra underneath it just made of fat and skin. This is not that fun. Um, but you got to get right down the middle. I go to a point about 20% of the way past the glands. Um, if you're worried, you should put something in the urethra, maybe an 18 silicon catheter because they're pretty stiff. And so maybe if you don't have a lot of room in there and you're just not quite sure where the urethra is, probably a good idea to uh, put that catheter in, palpate it. Oh, okay, there it is. Discard the, the, the catheter because it's filled with uh, ugly bacteria from the center of the urethra. The other thing, and this is the good thing about working with plastic surgeons side by side, is that we used to use, you know, whatever, big big sutures, you know, uh, polyester, who knows. Uh, and they were like, why don't you use fiber wire? And we're like, what's fiber wire? And they say, well, it's what we use to put tendons together, and it's incredibly strong. You can't even cut it with scissors. It never breaks. And so I put number two not 2-0, number two fiber wire through the periosteum, boom, boom, and then I stick that. That's 20 minutes. Um, I stick that right through the end of the device. Um, some people have talked about using uh, some kind of Gore-Tex, uh, but I don't do that. I just stick it right through the device, tie it down, and then I kind of entrap it around a second time so it's the second suture is kind of cramming it up against the muscle and tie it again. I haven't had one of these come off the bone in, you know, uh, dog's ears. Uh, they only get one cylinder. You cannot put two cylinders uh, in most phalluses. Just put in one cylinder. You put in two, you're just cramming too much stuff in there. Um, and I, I have put in two cylinders in two patients, but they were ALT patients with absolutely enormous phalluses. They probably could have held four cylinders. I don't know. Um, this is just making the point about penile lift. So I always see the patient, perfectly good phallus, but it's quite low actually. And so uh, I think that that phallus will do a lot better, better aligned uh, over, the, uh, over the bone. And I let the patients know that ahead of time. This is my show off picture. You know, if your patient's big enough, this is like a six foot eight person. You can just take like a giant flap from their giant arm and make a giant phallus and then show it to people and claim that all of your phalloplasties look like this. So that's what I'm doing. Um, I'm done done, so I don't want to... Here, let's talk a little bit about complication. So um, the, the complication rate isn't 45% anymore, but it is an appallingly high... 20% rate. Interestingly, semi-rigid uh, patients had a far lower uh, infection complication rate. Only about 14%. We were, we were sort of like, who do we put on antibiotics? Okay, they had an infection. But the truth is, that's probably the real uh, result right there. About 14% uh, have an infection requiring uh, removal. Um, and if you follow those patients long enough, they'll have a mechanical failure and you have to go in. I think this is, this is the Kaplan-Meier curve of survival. So let's go down here to about 10 months. So at 10 months, nothing's broken yet. So this is the mechanical rate. They're right about 10 months. They're using it a lot, perhaps, and starting to break. 
and then this is the uh, infection rate, and it follows exactly here that you're really getting bad infections to about six or eight months, and then boom, you're over the infections. That, to me, uh, is an important graph. Here is another important graph. I don't understand the math behind this. I'm going to admit this to you right now. So I have a biostatistician, and I said, I think I got better at this. I think that my case-by-case uh, uh, case, uh, uh, experience made for lower complications. That's just my gestalt. Can you look at all my numbers and tell me if that's true or not? And they said, yeah. Here is the relative risk of complications over time up to 80 cases in you. So I'm not even flattened out at 80 cases yet. So it took me two years at least to stop having unnecessary complications. That may say more about me than the operation, but there you have to worry. And so sometimes I'll have people call me and they'll say, hey, I'm going to start this. And I'm like, yeah, get ready to remove a lot of infected implants because you're up here on the curve and you need to be down here on the curve. Um, Anyway, that's it. Thanks. Sorry, I went a little bit over, and now Dimitri's going to drive to my house and shave my dog or something. It's terrible. It's already done. <laughs> Thank you. <clears throat> Please forgive for the raspy voice. I'll sound like Batman from now on. So um, let's start. Um, I, I will try to make it, again, not to teach you how to fix complications, but at least how to maybe manage them or recognize them and not to be afraid to have patients with complications in your clinic or in the emergency room. So recently, uh, had to be before 2019, we talked to different um, rec reconstructive surgeons around the United States and we, six institutions, we noticed that we see more and more patients with complications after phalloplasty or metoidoplasty. You could see that in a couple of years between us, we had uh, 40 post-phalloplasty and 15 metoidoplasty complications. Strictures, fistula, vaginal remnants, I'll discuss. But interestingly, more than 70% uh, had more than two complications per patient. So three complications per patient. Per patient. And uh, new thing was vaginal remnant and majority of com complications were uh, anastomatic strictures. So you're already familiar, there are two types of surgery generally, metoidioplasty and phalloplasty, where metoidioplasty is basically uh, every technique for very difficult hypospadias repair, right? You uh, open the cordy, you elongate the urethra, and there you go. So in my, in my simple representation, you basically tubularize labia minora, create ventral suture line over the catheter, and that's how it looks to a urologist, not to a plastic surgeon, basically a bunch of ventral suture lines. It's important because suture lines is where your complications happen. You could see suture lines to, uh, to close the vaginal cavity, ventral suture lines covering the urethra. You see uh, elongated clitoris there, maybe buccal mucosal graft on the back, maybe not. Every suture line here can break and give you trouble. So simply, there is only one paper, so it's easy to be a specialist after you read one paper about complications of metoidioplasty. It's a meta-analysis here. Stricture rate up to 63%, fistula up to 50%, cavity remnant almost never reported, but maybe never looked for. 
but up to 12%, maybe. What is not reported is other things that I see. So I, we don't really know a lot. What about glands denervation and continence? A reflexic bladder that I have seen, not from metoidioplasty, probably from very aggressive abdominal vaginectomy. And aesthetic problems, we still don't know um, how many patients don't like what they see. There is only one paper, or, or again, easy to be a specialist, uh, showing once you try to fix these complications after metoidioplasty, what is the best way to fix them? And even this paper doesn't answer it because every time, almost every time they use a different technique. Um, so if you use 70 different techniques uh, to fix 96 patients, you, you won't know what, what's the best technique. But you can summarize it here. The most commonly used technique was staged procedure. And in the staged procedure, it was 100% success for the 10 patients that were lucky to have the same operation. I have very simple uh, approach to fixing f uh, strictures in uh, after metoidioplasty. If it's a short stricture with a good local tissue, I think I can get away with a single stage procedure. You just open it ventrally, put a dorsal inlay like a SOPA, and close it in many, many, many layers to, to not have dehiscence and fistula repair. And in this case, I even was afraid to open the glands uh, to avoid glands dehiscence. So inlay here, many layers closure, and it worked out. By the way, this patient already had been, uh, testicular prosthetics and I was extra terrified to, to not ruin other people's work. Ideally, you wait for a couple of months at least before placing testicular prosthetics so that all the urethral work would be done, but not in this case. This is a terrible uh, other situation. In this case, you could see fistula, you kind of can see it on the retrograde urethrogram and stricture, and I knew that it was a poor local tissue. How did I know? Because I read the report. In the report, instead of buccal mucosa or any kind of, any kind of graft, they used tutoplast or alloderm, I don't remember. So it doesn't matter what you do. Please don't use alloderm or tutoplast to reconstruct the urethra. You can't put the scar inside the urethra and make a urethra out of scar and expect any other complications, uh, any other outcomes but uh, stricture. So I knew that the tissue is bad and I knew that it will be two stage. So what I did, here's a lacrimal duct probe through the fistula, you could see, metal and blue. I opened it ventrally, all this terrible blue tissue that was a scar, I had to excise it completely. I put a gigantic buccal graft in place and it's my favorite shape for the grafts for this. It's a Batman shaped graft, you know, like a Batman sign matches my voice right now and then look six months later somehow it survives gets vascularized and you could just close it and again close it in many many layers over the over the catheter I use seven layers like a seven layer cake I find seven layers I make them I make seven layers no come 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 visit me on Tuesday he's using loops and you don't use loops you could see seven layers, and uh, and this is before and after. That's it. So 
if you have good tissue, you can get away with the inlay and close it. If you have bad tissue, you stage it, use Batman sign. Okay? Easy. Phalloplasty. So this is a really cool video that uh, animator made, and it will help you to understand what is happening from urological standpoint, so you're not shy about the anatomy. You could, you don't have to make this procedure, you don't have to do any of the uh, repairs of complications. But I think this animation will help you to understand the parts of the urethra. Is it working? Okay. So the animator who's, um, who worked on this, you could see that the uterus goes away, vagina is obliterated, there are many ways to do it, closed. Meanwhile, the uh, vascular team is working on the arm. You could see the template. The skinny long part becomes the urethra. And a thicker, shorter part will become the, the outer cover of the neophallus. You could see that the outer part has a name blood vessels to provide the blood supply. But the other part receive random blood supply. And the worst part is that the one sticking out that will become later anastomosis. Why is this important? This is maybe the most important slide because this will give you the most trouble later. It will stenose because it's not vascularized. Anyway, tube within a tube, you rotate this flap around the catheter. You put stitches to anastomosis to itself. And then you rotate the other flap around in opposite direction and you anastomose it to itself again. While this is happening, the urologist is creating the, the lower part, the, the pars fixa. This part is called pars fixa, perineal urethra. You rotate it around the catheter, make this ventral suture line. I linger here because this will give you also trouble, ventral suture lines. And then, when the, once this is done, Nothing is moving. I think the computer is slow. We create a scrotum. There are many ways to do scrotum. Probably the best way is Santucci's way, but you create a scrotum. And then you connect the two pieces. You connect the upper piece to the lower piece. And so you create anastomosis and close everything. Now, I will stop right here because look, look how many suture lines Every one of them will give you trouble, potentially. The vertical suture line will potentially become a stricture, and horizontal ones will potentially become a fistula. So this is how it looks in other people's hands. Tubularize, close it in layers. This is how it looks in real life when you tubularize it around the catheter in two different di directions. And this is how it looks when it's all anastomosed vascularly uh, and urethra anastomosed to the urethra. This is the second most important slide. Again, the vessels innervate uh, and uh, uh, vascularize the outer flap, not, not so much the inner flap. And anastomosis will give you trouble. What kind of trouble? Up to 81% of stricture, 80% of fistula, wound complications, but not too many people discuss remnants, nerve problems, incontinence, reflexic bladder, aesthetic problems, we just don't know. So you, 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 you could become a specialist if you start reporting these things. I will kind of 
go really quickly over this one. I like this review because instead of saying comparing different type of flaps, it compares different type of urethras. And the bottom line is right here on the bottom line, on the bottom. Uh, the worst technique for urethra was preliminated technique with higher stricture and revision rates. No names named. You don't name names. Just last name. <laughs> so the third most important slide. If you see a retrograde urethrogram, you will identify the phallic urethra, anastomosis, pars fixa, which is a perineal urethra, kind of uh, identical to bulbar urethra in a cisgender male, and a native urethra. So three parts. If you see it on any kind of exam, there are three parts. And that's how I see it. Bunch of suture lines that give you trouble. If you could stay for just tw 20 seconds, you will see the animation that will explain the complications. So complications may happen at the anastomotic side where you try to put the catheter, meatus, or the whole, the whole urethra will be gone. As soon as the catheter is out and the first urination is being made, the pressure builds up and it can break through all the suture lines that were created, including into the vaginal cavity. That's it. <laughs> Thank you. This is scary. Thank you. I'm trying to scare you. <laughs> so my first couple of patients, I said there are these observed complications. I, I think I've seen everything. Anastomatic stricture, which is number one. Anastomatic stricture is the number one. Remember? It may be on the test. Anastomatic stricture is the number one complication. Proximal fistula, cavity, medial stenosis, or complete obliteration of phallic urethra. New kind of consult we see in the emergency rooms or in clinics. Uh, retention. So, what is the original operation? Read the notes, call the original doctor. What is the expected new anatomy? Is it what you expected from my little presentation? And then, then you can uh, check the problems. Number one problem is patient presenting with urinary retention. If you want to be safe, just put suprapubic tube and you're a hero. Or you could do endoscopic catheter. Do not place blind catheter in this patient. It will not go into the urethra most likely. It will go probably in that cavity. You will get urine output and you will think that you are in the right place because urine is out, but you just created a, better, a worse problem. Once you have the catheter or better uh, suprapubic tube, then you could do imaging. And this is just a catalog of things that you may find. Scary, scary things. Anastomatic stricture, stricture fistula, obliterated cavity, obliter uh, sorry, obliterated urethra with cavities, strictures, cavities. You may decide to solve them or you may just send the patient, but you're, you were a hero because you put suprapubic tube. Um, this kind of things, uh, we're surprised in the first one, I thought that this is the bladder. That's not the bladder. In a continent patient, without suprapubic tube, you should not see the bladder on the retrograde urethrogram. But it was so round and so big, I thought it was bladder. I discovered that it was vaginal cavity remnant and a stricture and a fistula. The second one is more obvious. It didn't fool me because it looked like a Mickey Mouse ears. Um, if you know how to do colpoclesis, you can go ahead and fix it uh, by doing basically a second 
vaginectomy. Just remove all of the vaginal remnant, all the vaginal epithelium. Uh, you could use epinephrine to, to make it less bloody. I also use methylene blue to cover the, all the uh, remaining epithelium and then remove everything that is blue and close it. At the same time, you will also fix the, uh, the fistula and the stricture. I'm trying to advance the slide. So some people call it mucus seal, some call it pseudo-diverticulum, as in it's not a diverticulum, but it's something else. So we sent all this uh, tissue to a pathologist to find out what is it? Is it an abscess? And all of them came back as a vaginal epithelium. So it is a vaginal cavity, but you can call it whatever you want. Anastomosis stricture is the number one location for the stricture. They, they look very cute, deceptively simple. And you just want to do excision and primary anastomosis. Wrong! <laughs> because I did. And others did. But I just did it once and it didn't work. But I'll explain in a second. So, um, you know, up to, let's say, three, four years ago, this was all literature available about, you know, fixing the complications. Huge complication rates, much higher than in cisgender patients with the same strictures. Right now, you could still be uh, an expert because there's only 10 pu published papers on the, on the topic. Our life is much easier than oncologists who needs to know the, you know, 10,000 prospective randomized double-blinded studies to, to make a point. We have only 10. So look at the failure rates. The best one was 41%. This is the biggest study, the last one. Uh, excision primary anastomosis had 43% failure rate. Usually it's 90% success rate in the cisgender males, right? This is a follow-up study from the same institution that performed excision primary anastomosis 44 times and they reported that actually at five years, it's even worse. It's only 47% success rate. So they did 44 not very successful um, operations, half of them. Um, so again, look at them. They're so cute, deceptive, seductive, don't. You see, it was original um, algorithm for the anastomatic structures. You know, tissue quality is important. You could still get away with a single stage, just not with the EPA. I crossed it out. And if that fails, you could do stage urethroplasty. And if that keeps failing, you could just do offer perineal urethrostomy. So um, this is an example of single stage procedure. If local tissue is great, not infected, and no prior failures, you could get away with a single stage. Get away because patients are traveling from long, long, far away. So this is a dorsal inlay, ventral only, and this is a perfusion study showing that um, Marsh's flap type of tissue is well perfused, so it can cover the uh, ventral graft and still feed it, and it will survive, whatever survival means. Uh, actually, we don't have time, but... Do we have time? We have time. So this is a quick example. I opened this uh, through the ventral incision. This is the second graft. Did you see the first graft in? It was in. Yeah. This is the second graft. You sew so fast. 
Uh, I edit so slow. <laughs> Um, I opened it uh, longer here than before because I expected cavity. Uh, I don't remember if this patient had cavity, but uh, through the same incision you could get to the cavity, eliminate it, and, and then finish your uh, urethral structure. So you could see deciding is it going to be left or right um, Marsh's flap covering the... and I decided it will be the left. So this is quilted, this thing will feed the graft, and then the opposite one will cover to prevent the fistula. So that's where I get the seven layers. But if the, there are prior failures or terrible poor tissue, then I create an augmented perineal urethrostomy, wait for six months, this is six months later. And then you cover it in seven layers again. <laughs> you just make them up. Okay, fine, six layers if you can. <laughs> Um, and we, we kind of came together with Li Zhao and we kind of did the same things. So we have a couple of patients with the uh, single stage, a couple of patients with the stage procedures. Majority um, were done in it. We could get away with a single stage. There were, there were two failures. So failure rates were improving slowly, right? Stage retroplasty at that point were only five patients. Now I have 10. And we're still, we, we still didn't have failures yet when you do it in stage procedure. Um, and I changed the outlines of, the, uh, of that graft. Now it looks like Batman sign. So the wings later become ventral part. But sometimes, a lot of times, there is completely obliterated pendulous urethra. In that case, you could either offer stage repair or perineal uh, urethrostomy. And majority of patients do not choose perineal urethrostomy. They feel like they went too far with all the separations uh, to be able to urinate standing up. So that's a very easy algorithm. Desire to stand to void, stage urethroplasty. No, perineal urethrostomy. Or for failure, you could still open perineal urethrostomy. That's how perineal urethrostomy look, looks. There's nothing to it. Um, that was a year ago year or two ago, we had uh, 21 patients with the penurethral strictures obliteration. Only four patients chose perineal urethrostomy. I think now I have 25 patients or 26. Still the same four patients. Everybody else wants to, to, to keep fighting. So at that point, 17 patients underwent stage urethroplasty where it's pretty long, up to 17 centimeter stricture. Two-year follow-up, uh, mean follow-up. We had two failures. Then we offered perineal urethrostomy to both. Only one accepted perineal urethrostomy. The second one went for the another stage procedure and is able to uh, urinate standing up. So this is some of these examples. Everything, obliterated penile, uh, urethra, abscess, vaginal cavity. If we don't have time, which I don't think we have time, uh, this one is published in... Um, Gold journal, and it, it shows all these maneuvers. If you wish, you could easily reproduce them. Uh, this is already a second stage. You see that there were some bad areas, so I added more graft here. 
and was still able to tubularize it in the second stage, kind of like a, a little bit of inlay. I used lingual mucosa this time. And for meatal stenosis, I can see a lot of patients, uh, a lot of patients came with a recurrent meatal stenosis after meatotomy. Patients hate meatotomy because they urinate on their shoes. So ideally, you don't do meatotomy, you just do a urethroplasty where you advance the meatus to the tip for them to still be able to aim. So this is the example. You could do it on stage or single stage. There's a variety of uh, ways that you could advance the meatus, just not meatotomy. And I'm finishing up here. Thank you for staying uh, for so long. I will never forgive you for leaving, but thank you, thank you. So incontinence is possible, but most likely it's just a random vaginal cavity full of urine that is keep dribbling. It's like a reservoir. You fix it and it goes away. Or there's a fistula, you fix it and it goes away. And for 10 years I was considering, what if somebody comes with true incontinence, not cavity or fistula? I don't know, maybe I have too much time on my, you know, uh, on my hands and I was theorizing what will happen one of these days. Is it, is it going to be a target sling? Is it TVT? Is it safe? How do I avoid pedicle with the T, uh, TOT? Or am I going to offer bladder neck AUS? And guess what, last year this time, patient comes with a true incontinence because of uh, vaginectomy was too aggressive, abdominal vaginectomy, I think. And uh, we offered first the uh, pellet chlor therapy. It was improved a little bit. Patient still was leaking a lot. So we offered autologous sling and somehow it worked. It's just one patient. And um, tomorrow we're presenting the video showing this uh, autologous sling being placed and then I communicated with my friend Krishnan Vankatesan. He did exactly the same operation in, in last August, and that also worked. So now we have series of two in the world that uh, this theoretical complication of incontinence was fixed with autologous sling. Almost the last couple of slides. Expect numerous simultaneous complications. It's almost never just one thing. Avoid blind placement of Foley catheters. Use, fully, uh, use flexible cystoscope or placement of the wire or put suprapubic tube. For anything else, stones, hematuria workup, urology things, avoid large, ca large caliber, avoid industrial scopes. The 16th French urethra is okay for urination, but not okay for a resectoscope. So you might have to improvise and use flexible things and ureteroscopes. Uh, percutaneous procedures. If this is a gigantic bladder tumor, maybe you should do temporary perineal urethrostomy and go this way just to avoid messing up with the urethra. If it's good enough for urinating, just leave it alone. Avoid compromising vascular pedicle to the flap. Do not ruin so much. Many hours and many hours of work and many uh, months of recovery. It may die, so stay away from this. Use Doppler, read the operative report, look at the scars, or just stay out of this area. And in your practice, expect all kind of patients with GU complications or just with GU problems, uh, urological problems, of, again, stones, UTI, you name it. You are the urologist. Do not send them back to the plastic surgeon. They will not fix that. 
it's urology. Complications are common simultaneous. Anatomy is very different from cisgender patients. There are, whatever we do, there is still high uh, reported failure rate. And patients will need lifelong follow-up, even if you are not the original surgeon that did that surgery, but you are their urologist. Thank you, and if we have time for questions, please, we have three minutes for questions, great. Thank you. Any questions? I think you've got us for another 90 seconds. No, I'm just kidding. Yeah. Could you say uh, Dr. Dimitri, I'm Wagner, I'm from Brazil. And a uh, very common complication is uh, structure. Why in the first surgery, phalloplasty, you, you don't put the graft into the pars fixer and pars pendula. So it's a very reasonable question. Your question is, why don't you do something against stricture? Well, here's the problem. There's grafts and there's flaps. A graft will always be worse than a flap. So the answer is that we probably wouldn't go to a graft. We're going to stay with our flap. So now what can we do? Well, we can maximize the flap so that your anastomosis is quite wide. We can maximize the flap so that the flap is healthy as possible. But you have to realize why that distal anastomotic stricture happens a lot is because it's the end of one flap, so the worst blood supply of the pars fixa, and the end of the other flap, so the worst supply of the skin. So you're taking the two worst parts of the flap, you're sewing them together, and you're hoping for the best. And that's why there's a 40% urethral complication right there. But I'm pretty sure that a graft wouldn't solve that. Something will solve it. I think every day about what will solve it, but I don't think it's a graft yet. But thank you. <laughs> I'm sorry, I couldn't understand you. Could I can hear you oh, less hyperbaric. Long. Oh, hyperbaric. Hyperbaric. Yeah. We're, so here we have a patient that's just had this massive surgery, five areas of their body, you know, lasted six or eight hours, and we're not really equipped to throw them in a hyperbaric uh, at that point. Um, again, good idea. I don't know that that's, and maybe that is the right answer, right? You know. For the children, for hypospid, is a good, the poor, the poor tissue. Pre-surgery. Yeah. 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 I mean, it's a good idea. I, I still don't, you know, I, I, I can share with you my frustration that I came to this field with 17, 18 years of experience just in fixing urethras. And I was going to be the big man who solved it all. I was going to look one, one case, oh, this is what you're doing wrong, kids. Uh, and then I was also going to figure out the absolutely best urethroplasty possible. Okay, neither of those things have happened, <laughs> you know, uh, because it's just technically challenging and it's not so very easy, uh, hasn't been easy for mere mortals like me to, fi to fix it. But we're still thinking about it. So we're as frustrated as you are about it. So some people thought that it's so clever, why not to make urethra that has its own blood supply? Second flap, it should solve everything. Two publications at least exactly the same stricture rate and fistula rate as the standard. So everybody's thinking about it, nobody can solve it. You saw the medoidioplasty and about 20% of people who get a phalloplasty actually have had previous medoidioplasty. They sort of tried it out, 
didn't work for them, now they want a phalloplasty. Well, this should work out well. The PARS fix is already made. It was made five years ago. So now that, that's gonna have great blood supply. I'm gonna hook it in. We're gonna have really low complication rates, exactly the same complication rate. Uh, so it's, it's almost like the tissue is laughing at us a little bit. None of our simple ideas are working, uh, but we'll keep at it. I, I now make perversely large anastomoses. It's like a joke, uh, but maybe shrinks down 40%. Haha, I'm still okay. So we'll see. And, and still sometimes sending me patients. Oh, thankfully. Patients. Thank you, thank you, thank you for sending me patients. 40%. To think. <laughs> Thanks, guys. Thank you. And uh, please, 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 please fill the um, surveys. Um, this course started in 2017, and because of the good vibe good um, uh, surveys we are keep going if you give us bad ones this was the end this was the last no, one no, i'll never you just can't you can't not give them to us oh is that i think so okay please give the yeah, <laughs> give some kind five star five star review no give whatever review we deserve but give us do it. five star <laughs> give us five stars on yelp yeah all right so <coughs> Thank you.